This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. And today, I'm joined by regular guest on this podcast, Leah Ippi, writer and political theorist. And today, she's going to be asking me the questions because I have a new book out. It's called The Handover, How We Gave Control of Our Lives corporations, states, and AIs. And Leah has some things that she wants to ask me about this book. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. And if you enjoy this podcast, we are pretty sure you'll enjoy the LRB too. And you can subscribe with a special offer by just going to lrb.me slash ppf. You get the first three months for £1 an issue. Just go to lrb.me slash ppf. Hi, David. It's a great pleasure to be here. I really enjoyed reading the book. There are some things that I agree with and some things that I don't agree with. But before we go into that, I thought maybe it might be good for our listeners if you give them a sense of what the arguments in the book are and you give us a short summary of it. Sure. So I'll do a short summary and then yeah, we'll get mainly, I think, to the disagreements. Let's see. So this is a book about a contemporary fear. I think that most people will recognise it's discussed a lot anyway. I don't know how many people deeply have internalised this fear. But that 21st century anxiety that we might be building machines with human-like qualities, decision-making machines, we might be making them humanoid, but they have superpowers possibly a kind of superintelligence, so that remains up for debate. And we are empowering these machines in ways that we may lose control over them. So we want them to help us, to work for us. You know, These AIs are there to be our servants and to make our lives go better, more efficient, faster, quicker, maybe even more fun, maybe make us richer. But we're not sure, given that they have powers that we don't have and capacities that we don't have, that they might not actually start controlling us in some ways. And in the worst case scenarios, killing us. You know, they might turn this world into some kind of plaything for them. We would become cannon fodder for them. That's the contemporary fear. My argument in this book, which is a, partly a book about AI, but actually it's mainly about states and corporations, is that this isn't new. That's my central argument. We have lived this before. In fact, we have been living with these fears for 300 plus years because we've already built those kinds of machines. Their name is states and corporations, and they are artificial human-like entities. They are humanoid in some ways. They have superpowers, not superintelligence. I'm pretty explicit about that. I don't think states are cleverer than us. But they do have other capacities which are non-human. You might even say inhuman. They live longer than we do. They have the ability to sustain certain kinds of obligations and powers longer than we have. And they rule our world for better and for worse. So the hopes that we have with AI make us richer, happier, healthier. Some of that has been delivered by living in a world of states and corporations. A lot of what made the modern world was built by them. But at the same time, it's possible we've lost control of them. We are right to be afraid of them. And worst case scenario, if the world ends, it'll be states and corporations that did it for these reasons, that we no longer have the ability to stop them treating us human beings as cannon fodder for them. I mean, that's the core argument. In the book, I then play it out in different ways. I think there's a, a sort of parallel set of reflections. How is this like and not like AI? Because AIs and states and corporations are not exactly the same, but there are parallels. I also 
do a historical version of this argument. There's a sequencing here. They came first, right? States and corporations came first. They built the world that we are now living in, including they built the capacity to build these new kinds of machines. And so in the book, I have quite a lot to say about how to think about the last 300 years and the role that these play. It's not the only way of telling that story, and I'm sure we'll come on to other ways of telling that story. And then I think it has profound political implications. And I'll just say one more thing. If there's a moral to this book, it's that we spend a lot of time thinking about what we as human beings can do to stop the robots taking over our lives. And we think about human to artificial intelligence as a contest or a trade-off. Are they coming to take our jobs? Are we going to lose control of them? Will they do what we want? And we forget that it's not about us and them. There's a third party in this relationship. And that is those other machines, the state and corporate powers that actually control the AIs. We don't, they do. They belong to corporations. They belong to states. Corporations built them. States control them. States regulate them. And those things that control them are not human. They are also machines. On the one hand, if we can get those machines to control the other machines, we might be fine. But it's also possible because they're machines too, that they will ally against us. It is not just possible, but I think already plausible to imagine scenarios in which states and new kinds of smart AI style technologies join forces against us run our lives in ways that their machine-like qualities feed off each other and they ignore what human beings need. And that, for me, probably is the scenario we should spend most time worrying about rather than the kind of killer robots coming to take over our lives. It's losing control of the artificial decision-making machines, states and corporations, which are the things that can allow us to retain control over the new AIs. That's the book. That's great. So one of the reasons I really enjoyed the book is that it has this paradoxical quality. On the one hand, it's reassuring because you say it's not new. We've done this before. Artificial agency we're familiar with through these institutions like states and corporations. And so all the scaremongering stories about AI we can be more relaxed about. I think the paradoxical quality is that in that what makes it reassuring is also what makes it terrifying because these artificial agents that we are already familiar with have spiraled out of controls and we have in some ways delegated to them too much and they have power of life and death over us just like the robots might have power of life and death over us. Again, the book is inhabiting this kind of space of ambiguity between telling a story that's very reassuring on the one hand and telling a story that's actually terrifying on the other, both Precisely because you emphasize the fact that this is continuous with a certain way of thinking about agency, which is artificial agency. So I want to talk to you about the state, and I also want to talk about a particular kind of state, the democratic state, and whether with the democratic state we might have more control over these institutions that we that you suggest in the book. But before we get to that, I want to start by talking about artificial agency. And because you start the book with Hobbes and you start the book with Leviathan and you start the book with this idea of creating these artificial agents that do certain things that humans can't do because of the qualities of, on the one hand, coordination, on the other hand, durability. So they do things that enables them to exercise power over us. We don't have these powers, these institutions. We give them the power and then they can do certain things. And on the other hand, they have lives that go beyond the life of the individual. And I think this is kind of core of your argument around artificial agency. But there is another way of thinking about the state, which is has also a tradition in the history of political thought, which isn't the artificial agency model. It's the organic state model. And I think the values that underpin these models are slightly different. The world of Hobbes is the world of Newton, of mechanical causes, of developments in science that were then reflected in certain ways of thinking about the state and thinking about political theory. In the organic conception of the state, there's a different, also in some ways, inspiration from science, but it comes more from biology and more from life sciences. And I think these models come out in different historical periods and perform different functions, but they give us ultimately, I think, different models of legitimacy in the state. So I was wondering if we could start by talking a little bit about why you choose to start with Hobbes and with this idea of power that is the power of an artificial agent when there are other ways of thinking about the state out there. So what is it that motivates for you starting this way? So I've got two answers to that. One, the straightforward one, which is 
So I start with Hobbes because Hobbes starts with the idea of the state as a robot, an automaton. So that image, that connection is there. 350 plus years ago, 1651, I can't even do the math. That's more, 370 years ago. Hobbes says the way to think about the state is as a kind of artificial person. And it's a kind of clanking, mechanical, robotic model of politics. It is reductive. I mean, it is definitely a kind of shrunken version of imagining politics. It's pared down to its essentials. But he says it will work, and it will work because if you build the machine right, it will have these qualities. It will be durable. It will be reliable, like the best machines. Durable, reliable, predictable. And then we can live our lives as organic creatures, I mean, Hobbes had a complicated mechanical view of the world, so organic and mechanical get a bit blurred. But nonetheless, we humans can live our human-like lives with all our passions and our craziness and all of that. But it won't spiral out of control because the machine will be the thing that gives it stability and reliability. So I start with Hobbes partly because there is something startling, and it did startle me when I first twigged the connection, in the idea that in 1651, someone could say the state is a robot. But the other reason is because I think that the organic image is essentially metaphorical because I don't think these things are alive. So when I think of the parallels with AI and technology, that you know, the debates are going on now. At what point could we speak about these new thinking machines as having actual life, as having consciousness, which may be an organic quality? It's very unclear to many people where to identify consciousness in the in the organism. And you can talk metaphorically about these new machines as being organic-like. But actually, I think the literal reading is closer to the truth, which is when you look at the history of the last 300 plus years, and the way in which these entities have come to dominate our world with their durability, their ability to sustain particular burdens. And in the book, I identify two. They can carry debt. I mean, it sounds very mechanical because it is. They can carry debt and they can do war. I mean, human beings have always done war, but these machines can sustain what's involved in modern war fighting, which is they can finance it and they can keep going and they can use human beings as pawns in their games. I think the mechanical description is closer to what has made them so powerful. I don't think their power comes from an organic-like quality. I completely get that you could imagine them as being more human-like, and it would probably be better if they were. They would have some of our vulnerabilities because organisms die and organisms get sick and organisms go mad. These things don't do those things. They are cold machines. It's, you know, you said you found my book reassuring. It's not intended to be reassuring. It's intended in some ways to be quite bleak, because I think the history of the modern world suggests that it's the machine-like versions of us that we've created in politics that are the dominant ones. I want to say for better or for worse, it's probably for worse, though they've also done amazing things in giving us control over our lives. I want to go back to the distinction between mechanical and, and organic models, but I think one way to, to get to that, because I don't want to make it too specialist and too difficult to follow, one way that we could talk about the state is by recognizing that the state is different in different historical periods. And you acknowledge this, so you say it changes and uh, it has different configurations in different territories and different times. It's closer to us at some point and further away from us at other points. And I suspect that's because there are certain values that the state carries forward about how we live and how we want to live with other people and what makes for a better or worse representation and delegation of powers to the state. And I worry that what you were just saying now loses that a bit. If you emphasize the cold, hard quality of the way in which exercises power, so you return to this bare Hobbesian model, we run the risk of losing sight of the distinctions between these different kinds of states that in history have performed their job in ways that are better or worse in different historical periods and in response to different stimuli from humans, actually. So one of the, to go back to the mechanical versus organic model. So for me, the difference between these two ways of thinking about the state is actually in how we think about our causality. So in on the one hand, in the mechanical model, you have mechanical causes. And in the organic model, you have a kind of purpose that is also a moral purpose or that you can understand by thinking about morality and, and values and norms and so on. 
And I suspect that you think differently about the state because you don't think that there are any values that it carries forward or there are any things that it's supposed to replicate. Or So I don't think it has its own yeah. values. I don't think it has inherent values. I think we give it values in the same way we give any decision-making machines values. We set up this new generation of AIs in a way that they completely reflect our values. It's a sort of truism of the contemporary world that these supposedly thinking machines are actually just reflecting the things that we feed into them. And I think most people recognize that now, precisely because they are not organic. They don't have their own consciousness and their own organic drive. So I'm not at all suggesting that these dominant machines, these states and corporations that have shaped our world, are sort of valueless. I don't think they do have their own values. I think we, we give them the values. But what happens to our values when they are fed into these machines is that the character of the machines shapes the output. So it can't just be about our values. And I suppose you and I would differ on this. I think it really matters the way that the character of the machine shapes the output and that you do see historically, yes, states are very different in different times and different places, not just democratic versus autocratic, but cultural legacies of empire and domination completely shape how people experience the political version of this mechanical decision-making entity. And yet you also see this kind of replicable pattern across the modern world. And I talk about it quite a lot in the book. Very different kinds of states, very different cultures, very different background human experiences feed into this machine. You get different outcomes, but you also get weirdly uncannily similar outcomes on those basic superpower qualities, war fighting qualities, debt sustaining qualities, ability to manage a capitalist economy in a certain kind of way, to generate wealth, but also to do it on the basis of debt. All of that cuts across differences of values. And then you and I could argue, and we probably will, as to whether it's too resigned to say, our values come out of these machines in a way that has mechanized them and not to try and force the machines to be more reflective of what we truly value. But I look at the history of the modern world and I think that that is a noble but somewhat futile endeavor. But why is it futile? Because these machines are so much more powerful than even the value-laden collective versions of us. So there are, I mean, maybe we should frame it in this way, you know, there are versions of democracy which offer, and the Hobbesian one is not this at all, it's absolutely austere in its, you, you feed inputs into the machine and you just have to accept the answer it gives you, regardless of whether it seems to reflect what you value. And there are versions of democracy that, of course, can give you much more input from people and their values and what they treasure and cherish and what they want to achieve, and gives you outcomes that people who live under these systems recognise as, in some sense, their own, I do recognise that. I don't think that explains the power of these institutions. And I think the power of these institutions has artificial qualities that go beyond that and often make those qualities secondary to what they're actually doing. And I suspect that is similar to what is going to happen with AI, in that we will feed our values into these machines, but some of their superpowers, because they are inhuman, will use this word advisedly, kind of trump that, you know, it'll, it'll, it won't come out the way we want. And it won't because they have a mechanical or artificial life of their own. Yeah, so I think this is actually the core of our disagreement. You think there is something that's essential about that. And I think it's contingent that they have these qualities. I think it's historically contingent. And I think it has to do with the particular historical circumstances in which this model of the state was asserted. So I want to just put it to you, because that was one of the things that I was missing when I read your book, is that your book is all on focused on agency, but it has very little to say about structure and about a particular way of looking at the world, which says, look, agency is actually a reflection on structural constraints, and the structural constraints aren't reducible to politics. There is also economics, there is society, there is culture more broadly, and there is a way of thinking about the development of this absolute modern state that we are familiar with historically, and its spectacular success that connects it to its coming about in these particular historical circumstances that are also connected to the circumstance in which a dominant economic model emerges and becomes consolidated, which is capitalism. So this is actually where I think we really disagree. You think that the states can go wrong and the states, we can lose control of them because 
it has something to do inherently with their mechanical artificial quality. And I think the mechanical artificial quality of the states that we have that are the dominant states that model the world around them are those qualities because of the economic environment and the political economic system in which these states have emerged and become dominant. And there were other models of states out there when the Hobbesian absolute state of France and Great Britain and its relationship to corporations, we can come to that in a minute, emerged and was consolidated. But they all lost out. Why? Because they weren't as good at putting together political and economic factors and creating these structures that were mutually reinforceable and mutually sustaining. And so they lost out. And so the Habsburgs lost out, the Ottoman Empire lost out, the Russian Empire lost out. Outside Europe, loads of different models of thinking about political community lost out and were co-opted by the absolute modern state that we know because of this combination of political and economic factors. And I worried when I read the book that your account was too much focused on agency and not enough on structure. Yeah, I got lots of things to say about that. I mean, I do, I don't agree with you about the book, because <laughs> I want to defend the book. But I mean, I think it's clear that maybe I didn't make it clear enough that I absolutely agree it's contingent. So there is nothing about this that is, this is the way it was meant to be, or this was the way it had to be. It is contingent, and it is coming together of circumstances, structure, and this kind of agency. And under those conditions, this kind of agency does seem to win out. The reason that I focus on agency is I think if you don't like that, and I think there are lots of reasons not to like it, not to, to be regretful. I think there are lots of reasons not to be regretful, because there are definitely some good things that came out of that version of politics. Some of the things that people like Hobbes hoped might happen did happen, including we did become safer and more secure, some of us anyway, some of us, in the ways that might have been hoped. But there are many reasons to regret it. Not least, it is sort of inhuman. There is something inhuman about it. There is something mechanical and cold about it. But if you regret it, I think you need a rival account of agency, not to say, oh, it's structural. Because capitalism is not an agent. Capitalism is an ideology or it's a set of ideas. And it's also a set of background conditions within which agency happens. And in this book, I describe these things as super agents in contrast to the phrase that's used about AI superintelligences. So they're not superintelligences. The British state is not smarter than the smartest human beings in Britain. It's almost certainly stupider than they are. But it is a super agent because it has powers of agencies that human beings lack, of durability, of scope, of scale, of ability to sustain the consequences of decisions that goes beyond anything that any humans have ever achieved, or earlier collective enterprises, beyond anything that the Catholic Church or the Roman Empire could do. These these machines can do. So if you don't like the alliance between this kind of agency and those structural conditions, I don't want to be one of those people who sounds fatalistic about this, but there are many books written about changing the structural conditions, but I don't find them plausible unless they have an account of agency which can compete with the superhuman qualities of these agents. And it's hard I mean, one of the reasons those rival systems lost out is they weren't able to sustain debt or war or collective decision-making and its brutal consequences in the way that these things were. And we'll get onto the corporations in a minute because they do the same thing too. So I'm not a fatalist, and I think there are a hundred different ways we could organise our world. And I say this is a 300-year story, and in the history of the human species, that's nothing. It's like a blink of an eye. It's the thing that we are in at the moment, but we're probably coming out of it into something else. It could be some nightmarish AI-based future. It could be liberation. You know, It could be versions of these machines that finally do humanize them and fill them with values. But I still think you have to explain how your agency, your account of agency, with all of its values, can compete with the agency of these things, not simply to say a different set of structural conditions would empower different kinds of agents because I think the second thing is true but I don't think it's an answer to the first question. But can I press you a little bit on that? So these agents that have become successful and that have these qualities because of their capacity to sustain debt and fight wars and so on, that's not a universal condition. That's the condition of a very small minority of states in dominant countries that were enabled by the wealth and the power that they commanded in acquiring those 
And in fact, so if you think about, again, debt, for example, one of the reasons why certain states were able to sustain debt was that they were out there competing with other states for resources and, you know, all the familiar stories around imperialism and so on. And not all states succeeded. So not all, So the fact that these states had artificial qualities, at some abstract level, that is true for all states. But at a more specific level, when you look at which particular agents became successful, it's the ones that were able to actually become, in some ways, the most effective vehicles for carrying forward these economic interests. And so it's it seems to me that if you just tell the story as a story about the artificial agency of the state, then we miss out on the differences between these different states in different parts of the world and how for some states, it's, you know, they can't carry debt forward and they can't sustain wars and they do, they become victims, they, they get wiped off the, the face of the earth. And, and in fact, it's very sort of small minority of states that are able to do this in the long run for 300, 400 years. If you think about most other states out there, they've gone through the motions and some of them were wiped out. They don't exist anymore. Others were co-opted by other states. Others were uh, changed their nature significantly. So what is it about just the artificial agency without incorporating this structural constraint than telling a story that is about the capitalist state rather than the state as such that explains its success? So I think there's a big difference between the 300-year story and the 100-year story and the 50-year story. And in the 300-year story, there were very, very few of these. And as you say, they achieved their early dominance by co-option, by conquest, by ruthlessly exploiting their advantages, their huge early adopter advantages, the background conditions of the British state, which include natural resources, you know, all sorts of accidents of geography and geology and history gave it an, an early adopter advantage. And to go first in this world, to have the first of these clunking machines was to win. And then others followed and copied, but few, and there were terrible wars between them and some got destroyed and some prospered. And that story is highly contingent, though it does seem that these models were the ones that won out. And you could say that that may be chance or luck, although I doubt that, that it is chance and luck. But over the course of the last hundred years, what you see is the repetition of the adoption of this model of politics in lots and lots of different places and with similar results for better and for worse. You know, better and worse, I mean that. Prosperity, longevity, human life expectancy doubling in places, all of that, the bit of the story we haven't told, it goes with empowering corporations, so the modern capitalist corporation, which also sustains debt and projects and has an inhuman quality and keeps going and is able to do things that no other similar entity can do. And so you see that in places like China, where China has had a powerful state for quite a long time, pretty Leviathan-like, pretty brutal. But the transformative moment, for better and for worse, comes in the 1970s with the alliance between that powerful state and allowing corporations to take on some of those responsibilities, some of the risk, some of the reward, and suddenly you get this similar explosion. And you see it repeated around the world in lots and lots of different places. I'm not saying that I'm definitely not saying in this book, I'm someone who thinks, you know, this is not a sort of you know, Western democratization development argument that everyone should copy the, the modern Western version of this in order to have peaceful and prosperous lives. I don't believe that at all. But I believe partly through accidents of history and partly now through the conditions, meaning there are very few alternative paths available if you want to compete in this world. That is what has increasingly happened. And so you see places that don't have any of those advantages, that were victims of this kind of politics and have nothing in common, as I say in the book, you know, Denmark and South Korea, nothing in common at all. But adopting this kind of model doesn't have to be democratic, particularly. What it has to be is the superpowers of these artificial agents kind of let off the leash, but taming each other. So artificial agent, artificial agent being the constraint on each other. Something about that seems to be the thing, and I talk a lot about what that something might be, that dominates in our world. And given that, the alternative models, I really hope they're out there, but I don't see them in the short term competing with that. But could that be because we have the wrong diagnosis? So if we had the right analysis, then we would also see these models have more of a purchase and the alternative as well. Models. The alternative models, yeah. So, so who's, that's because we're too we wedded. Well, whoever, you know, whoever is the we in your book, the whoever is reflecting on 
the modalities for thinking about agency in the contemporary world and the constraints of that agency. And it seems to me that it's because we're constraining our horizon in thinking about the relationship between states and corporations. And if you think that way, if you kind of, you become wedded then to the status quo and then inevitably these alternative models lose out because they're they're already at a disadvantage, but then they become even more disadvantaged by the discourses that we create to sustain or not sustain them. So let me put the counter argument. I believe the opposite. So I believe that one of the reasons that these models are so dominant is we spend so much time thinking about the we in your thing, the people who have values, alternative values that they want to input into these machines. And so much of our politics is about that, thinking about what are the things that we value, how can we have more of them, that we don't spend enough time on the mechanics, that actually part of the reason that these things are so powerful and so dominant is that we think if we can change the values, they will change. And I think that that's a mistake. I think it's a category mistake. I think history suggests it's a category mistake. These things do have a mechanical artificial life of their own. They do have powers and attributes and qualities that are very hard to control. We built them and we empowered them and we probably didn't think hard enough about how we would rehumanize them. And I think we spend much too much time in the contemporary world. This is going to sound, I'm going to make myself sound awful here. I don't mean to. We spend too much time talking about values, not because values aren't important, they're incredibly important, but values absent an account of how you're going to change the dominant mode of agency to make these machines, these monsters, these robots more reflective of our values. Too much of that is time wasted while the machines are grinding on. They are grinding on. And then you get the frustrations of contemporary politics. So when you know when people talk about democracy, they spend so much time talking about what they want democracies to do and not enough time talking about if you want democracies to do that and if democracy is this kind of machine, you've got to rewire it. And we don't. But I find that criticism plausible, but only to a position that says values are all that matters. The account I'm giving you is a little bit more complicated than that. It's not just about values that matter. It's about values that matter plus a diagnosis of the world and an account of politics and economics and structures more generally. And why is it that the values that matter actually don't make it to this level? And therefore, also what you conclude, which is, well, these agents are remote from us and we're not interested in them and yet they do all the work. And so if we were a little bit more interested in the kind of inner workings of the state, maybe we'd have a better chance of changing them. Well, they're maybe more remote from us because we don't have the ways and the tools of changing them. We don't have the decision-making mechanisms. We're too much at the mercy of other factors. So individuals are not in control of them because they have in these systems, in these states, because of the particular relationship between politics and economics, they're disempowered. And so they don't take an interest in politics, not because inherently human beings wouldn't be interested in politics, but because it's pointless. They become cynical and they become apathetic because if they were to try and change it, corporations win and uh, you know vested interests prevail and so on. So this is not just a story about how if we had the right values and if we cared about the right things and we could change the state, this is about Yes, you need the right values and you need an account of freedom and so on. But on the other hand, you also need a diagnostic account of why the contemporary capitalist states that we have can't realize those values. In particular, that has to do with the way in which they control or fail to control corporations. And I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit more about corporations because it might sound like a kind of abstract uh, argument otherwise. I, yeah, so, so maybe we could start by, you could say something a bit more on, on what role corporations play in your account and what kind of artificial agents there are. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. So I think corporations are similar kinds of artificial agents to this model of the state, and often they're even more pared down. You know, some corporations are simply shells. They solely exist to have certain basic capacities to be able to sustain certain kinds of obligations over time. And they are entirely functional. They're like the most minimal sort of algorithmic robotic entity that you feed stuff into and you hope that what you get out of it is what you want from them. All the way through to other kinds of corporate entities through history and including in the contemporary world, which are much richer versions of these artificial agents. They have state-like qualities, both in their powers, but also in the loyalties that they inspire, the allegiances of the people who feed into them, run them, belong to them in all of these ways. They're incredibly powerful, some of them. They're durable. They're not as durable as states. So there are lots of disanalogies here. And, and one of the big ones that I point out in the book is the number of states in the world is pretty limited, and it doesn't seem to be growing much. I mean, barely at all. Sort of around 200 seems to be what we can sustain. The number of corporations in the world is growing at an unbelievable rate, and they can be produced at will. Uh, they're very easy to make. States are really hard to build, sustainable, durable states. Corporations, you just sign a piece of paper and you've got a corporation. Anyone can do it. You and I could do it tomorrow, right? We could create a corporation. And there are millions and millions, tens of millions of these things, more and more all the time, every day. Most of them only last for a very short time. You know, they don't have a human lifespan. In the case of states, what makes them inhuman is they live longer than human beings. Not all of them, but most of the successful modern ones do. Almost all corporations die well within a human lifespan. The majority of them die within 10 years. But a few of the most successful, powerful ones have that extraordinary longevity, and they outlast the human beings who make them up. So corporations have those state-like powers, but they're also very, very different. They're subject to state control, and states have very different kinds of relationships with them. The United States has a very different the state, very different relationship with its most powerful corporations than the Chinese state with its most powerful corporations. And the question of how states and corporations relate to each other, artificial to artificial entity, does a huge amount to shape our world. And again, some of it is pretty mechanical, but a lot of it is shaped by contingency and accidents of history and all the rest of it. So I'm not saying, I'm definitely not saying in this book, states, corporations and AIs are the same thing. And I'm not even saying states and corporations are the same thing, but they are similar things. They have similar origins and they have similar superpowers. And sometimes when they come together, their superpowers make human lives go better. And sometimes they make human lives go worse. Yeah. And so what I found very interesting is that there is a part of the book that says that the state has control over corporations. But then when you go into sometimes. the contemporary world it seems like the opposite trend is the case. So when in your discussion, for example, around big tech and control of big tech and data, uh, manipulation of data and power over individuals' lives and so on, it seems like the state is actually modeling the corporation rather than the corporation being constrained by, by the state. One of the most interesting parts, I thought, in your analysis is when you discuss what does algorithmic data manipulation do to our models of responsiveness and to the way in which the state, who has been traditionally very slow and responsive with its own kind of timeline that was longer than the immediate instant gratification that these models, based on the kind of big tech models that we're seeing today, are based their interactions, has actually become more like a corporation, both in terms of how we think about politicians, how we think about leaders, how we think about the relationship between voters and consumers. And so there's something that the power of big tech has done to our democracy that has in some ways disabled the state and paralyzed it. And in fact, it looks like corporations have a lot more power in those circumstances in the contemporary world than the states that we're familiar with. Yeah, and I absolutely think that that is a contingent story too. So states, I still think, have powers that corporations don't have, and they could use them. And they are using them. The Chinese state actually probably is using some of its unique state-like powers to try and get a grip on some of these corporations. Again, this is not a morality tale, and I'm definitely not saying, therefore, we should do what the Chinese are doing. It's always for better and for worse. The American state could do it. It isn't doing it for contingent political and other reasons, partly because of the way it's structured. There are times in history when corporations run riot and states give up their 
ability to control them. There are other times when states dominate them. And that relationship is sometimes dynamic and sometimes sclerotic and everything in between. But what's important about it is that it is a relationship with, between two kinds of artificial agents. So my book is not a history or an account of everything. It's not saying this is the way to understand everything. It is the kind of book that says, I think too many accounts of our world miss one of its key features without which you can't explain anything. It's not a total account, but I think it is a necessary part of any account, which is these kinds of artificial agents with their particular qualities, which sometimes are quite AI-like. So then we have three players in this game, states, corporations, and the new algorithmic technologies. Some owned by corporations, some regulated by states, some regulated by states through corporations. You're a complicated three-way relationship between artificial and artificial and artificial. And we humans input into all of those, and we are shaped by the outcomes of all of those. But the key relationships are artificial to artificial with human input. And the temptation to want to reassert the human against these things, which I feel we all feel it, when you encounter these machines, a state that is cold and unresponsive, a corporation that is cruel and heartless, an algorithm that treats you as a source of data for its schemes. We want to scream, but we're people too. We all do. But screaming that makes no difference to the key agency relationships. There are ways we could scream that that feed into those key agency relationships, but that will only happen if we tailor and shape the way we interact with these things so as to recognize their distinctive qualities. And the danger of the world that we're living in is that the human is getting squeezed out. There are different models that are more human. I am completely convinced in the way I understand you to be that there are more human ways of doing politics that are better for humans. And they've been tried and sometimes they work for shorter or longer periods of time. But the dominant mode of the 21st century remains this form of artificial agency in a world where another form of artificial agency is gathering speed. And that's what scares me, the coming together of these. And saying, but we're human too, isn't enough. Yes, but the dominant model is that because of the structural constraints. And it seems to me that there's two elements here. So one is the artificial agency and the other one, that's the one that I'm trying to emphasize, is structures. And then there's values and humanity in between as the kind of connecting element somehow. And I worry that if you, and it seems to me that the answer has to be dialectical. So these things all have to come together. But it's important to emphasize in whose name and for what values and in what, and this is why I kind of go back to my organic beginning, which is all about what is the purpose here? What is the purpose of these institutions? And it seems to me that if we prioritize just the agency and just the artificial part of the agency argument, we then miss out on the opportunities that we have to then make them more responsive, make them more human. And I, I take the point that we need to kind of see which are the main players here and how they interact. But on the other hand, we also need to keep emphasizing the fact that it's us who legitimate them. So yes, it's frustrating, but we need to keep reminding ourselves of what is the source of the frustration, which is that humans are actually squeezed out because of the particular interplay of agency and structure. And we need to remind ourselves of this alternative world in which that interplay is not essential. I agree. But I also, so I don't know if this makes me more cynical or more pessimistic. I mean, I think there's a a bet that has to be placed here on what will make the difference. I do think part of that story of the last 300 years, the for better and for worse story, is some of the for better has disabled us from thinking about politics in these ways. And that is a fact about modernity, which is to be a modern citizen of a successful, originally sort of exploitative and brutal, maybe they're all still exploitative and brutal, but successful modern state, and the way these states work is that the machine takes decisions for us. It encourages a certain willingness to abdicate responsibility with which human beings have shown themselves over this period to be relatively comfortable. And if we want to galvanize human beings out of that, historically, what has galvanized human beings have been when the machine has failed in various ways or the risks have become so great or the crisis is so acute 
could be a war, an economic disaster, it could be a natural disaster, that it reminds people that they're running huge risks by abdicating responsibility to the machine. But I still think those circumstances are quite rare. Part of the challenge of politics is to spot the opportunities. I also think that in the dialectic between structure and agency, the thing that allows us to change the structure has to be using the existing forms of agency. I don't think we can do it outside of that. I don't think you can change structure as structure. And it's certainly possible, and these states could be very different in the things that they try to achieve with different kinds of input from us. My fear or suspicion is that not enough attention is paid to these kinds of agency and just why they become so dominant, the alliances they make with each other and now with these new kinds of machines, their advantages of convenience and replicability and efficiency, all their cold mechanical advantages, that the human response to them, it's lost out for a reason. And to go back to where I started, you know, that fear we have of AIs, which is we built them, they're going to make our lives go better but we know we might lose control of them because they might go down a path that kind of works for us and we don't spot the point where it's gone too far. I think that is a reasonable reflection of the history of the modern world under these conditions, that relationship between structure and agency. And we should recognize that. But what's wrong with the alternative view, which is that these artificial agents are ultimately controlled by elites and and they respond to the incentives of elites and that's why we don't have so we have this promise of representation of all of us through this artificial agent and the agent working for the benefits of all of us and so on and and so there is a we there but actually in reality the we is very much a fragmented we and so there are some people who actually have much more influence and impact and can really change the agents and the workings of the agents, whether it's political leaders, whether it's economic elites, and other people who are left out because of this particular configuration. Yeah. And these machines can be captured in all sorts of ways, and they have been captured. I completely agree. So then the question is, how do we rescue them and rescue us from this? And I suspect we both agree that swapping out the elites isn't going to do it although that's, that has tended to be the dominant model that's been tried through modern political history. It requires structural change and it requires empowering the we to have control and input in ways that hasn't been true to this point. So I think I probably agree with you, but I suspect the answer to how, I don't know the answer to how, and I th- don't think you know the answer to how, but how that happens, how that is going to happen, I have a feeling in the third decade of the 21st century under conditions of rapidly advancing AI, climate change and all the strains it's going to put on basic security and, as it were, the Hobbesian dynamics of our politics, thinking really hard at the same time as thinking about what we want to achieve, about the constraints on how we can do it that are imposed by that history that I've been telling, matters in ways that aren't often recognized enough. So it is a kind of realism. It's not pessimism. I think it is a realism. But I don't think it's just we need to swap out the elites for the us. These things have a life of their own. They've been captured by elites. And elites and them have a certain kind of relationship now, not least because elites, some of them well, are inhuman too, right? So you want to humanize it. So my answer would be that oh, we you do need have an to answer. identify, well, it seems that we need to identify the structural constraints on elites. And that's what the capitalist story does in a way. It, it gives you an account of why it is that the structure places certain constraints on these agents, both corporations and the state. And that's where there's another point in your book where I thought I slightly disagreed, which is you say the state has a general purpose, but the corporation doesn't have a general purpose. But that actually, I don't think that's the case. Corporations all also have a general purpose, which is to make profit. It's just that that general purpose is not part of the official brief of what a corporation is. So on the surface, the corporation as an agent appears to us as an agent with a limited brief. But actually, all corporations do have a structural constraint on them, which is they need to maximize profit. And it's only once we identify that structural constraint that we can then think, okay, then what are the values that 
are in play when we think about the interaction between this artificial agent, the state, and this other artificial agent, which is the corporation, and how is it that we are by default committing to this value, profit-seeking, as opposed to another value that we could have, which is justice or sharing or freedom, what you name it. So I think profit-seeking is not a general value, it's a specific value for the reasons you said. A corporation that exists to maximize profit is not doing something that's of general value in the way that a state has the ability to adjust its values in real time, depending on circumstance. So a corporation is like a machine that's been set up with a particular purpose. That could be a very broad purpose, but broad is not the same as general. States are a little bit more like organic creatures. I don't think they are organic, but they mimic organic creatures in the sense that as they seek to prosper or to defend themselves, they can radically change their purpose almost at the drop of a hat in a way corporations find really hard to do, which is one of the reasons I think states have powers that corporations don't, that could be used, their ability to change the way corporations don't. But I still think the change of the structural conditions is going to have to be done through these kinds of states. I mean, there are more radical versions of politics that would want these states to be replaced or overtaken by versions or models that allow human input in ways that are radically different. I don't think under contemporary political conditions that's going to happen. But I don't think contemporary political conditions are in any way fixed. So I think there are ways you could do this kind of artificial agency, which would really change how we all experience the world, make a fairer world, get corporations back under control, get the AIs back under control. But I still think that it's got to be channeled through this version of artificial agency. I think the story you began with, which is these other models lose out, I see nothing in the 21st century that tells me that, unlike the earlier models, this time the alternative models will win. I think, Leia, I don't know if you agree with this, we could keep going for quite a long time and maybe we should continue this conversation both off mic and on mic. Let's do more. Not about my book, but we haven't even got to democracy yet. And yeah, that was means. the next thing I wanted to ask you yeah, about. And I think we, if democracy we did that, is the missing link between humanity and artificial agency and structure. I think that's another 50 minutes. So let's do that again. And let's not make it about my book. Let's make it about democracy, which is slightly more important. But if anyone after that would like to read my book, and I really hope you do, I hope you can hear that there's a lot in it to agree with and a lot to disagree with. And also, if you would like to support independent bookshops, which is a value that I think a lot of us want to uphold, you can get the book from bookshop.org. And for PPF listeners, if you type in handover when you check out, you get shipping for free for the next couple of weeks anyway. So if you'd like to buy the handover, just go to bookshop.org. And then when you check out, type in handover and it'll be shipped to you for free. Do please follow us on Twitter. I still refuse to call it X, at PPF Ideas. I'm going to be doing some events about this book. And if you'd be interested in coming along, we will tweet the links to those events there too. Coming up on Past, Present, Future, we have got lots of people talking about lots of different ideas, starting with a conversation about the enduring appeal of George Orwell's Animal Farm. Why has that book lasted in the way it has? And what does that tell us about political allegories? Please join us for that. Thank you, Talea. I really enjoyed that conversation. I feel beaten up, but in a good way. Thank you. It was really great. My name's David Runciman, and this has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. <laughs>